This is the Political Insider with Bill Ballinger. The Political Insider is your inside source on politics from the White House to the State House and all points in between. If it's in the headlines, the Political Insider will have the story. Let's get started. Here's Bill Ballinger. Welcome, weekend warriors of Michigan politics and government. A budget hole, a deficit. Didn't we hear a lot about that last spring? Supposedly a huge, looming $3.1 billion hole for the fiscal year budget 2020 to 21. That means from this coming October 1st through September 30th of next year, 2021. That is what uh, all the bean counters and soothsayers on fiscal matters in Lansing thought would be the cost of the coronavirus in Michigan and especially of Governor Whitmer's lockdown executive orders, which badly damaged the state's economy during the first eight months of the year. But guess what? It appears the deficit is nowhere near as big as that, at least at this point. Instead of $3.1 billion hole to dig out of, I mean, it's almost disappeared. This is very complex. Uh, We're going to talk, we hope, later in the program to somebody from the Citizens Research Council about all this and try and explain it. Now, let's go to item number two. There will be apparently a second proposal on the November 3rd general election ballot beyond the one that we talked about a month ago with its sponsor, State Senator Jim Runstead. Uh, That was a proposal, and this will be on the ballot, too, called a proposed constitutional amendment requiring a search warrant in order to access a person's electronic data or electronic communications. That was not foreseen, electronic communications, back in the state constitutional convention of 1961-62, So the legislature felt, you know what, Uh, we have got to make it crystal clear that a search warrant is necessary to access a person's electronic communications. And so they're asking, the legislature is, the people of Michigan on November 3rd in a statewide ballot proposal to approve allowing the Constitution to be amended to require a search warrant to access a person's electronic communications. Now, that was settled. And a month ago, when we talked to Senator Rundstedt, it looked like that was going to be the only proposal on the ballot. But now the legislature has voted. And remember, it takes a two-thirds majority in both the House and Senate for the legislature to put something on the ballot. So this proposal and also the Rundstedt electronic uh, communications proposal had to get strong bipartisan support, Democrats and Republicans in sufficient quantity, two-thirds majority each chamber had to approve this to get it on the ballot. This other proposal that just has been approved by the legislature to go on the ballot last week would allow money and natural gas and mining on public land to be used to conserve land and water and support recreation in state parks and other public areas. That is not apparently allowed, although you might think it would be at this point, but it is not allowed. And so 
the legislature is asking the voters to approve this proposal in November. Both these proposals, the one on public land, state park, uh, use of money from gas and mining on public land to be used for that purpose, and the Runstead electronic communications proposal. They'll both be on the ballot. Now, let's go to item number three, and that is the ongoing, as we speak this weekend, uh, Republican and Democratic state conventions. Now, these have really gotten overlooked this year, I think, to a greater extent than any before because of the ongoing last week Democratic National Convention and the Republican National Convention this past week, which got all this TV time, including the acceptance speech by President Trump Thursday night on the White House South Lawn. But there is, or are, I should say, two state conventions coming up this weekend. And I say coming up, they're actually going on right now. They began Friday night and they'll continue into Saturday. And these are very important because these are the conventions at which the two parties, the major parties, nominate their candidates for the state Supreme Court, the University of Michigan Board of Regents, the Michigan State University Board of Trustees, the Wayne State University Board of Governors, and the State Board of Education. And there are contested races for these nominations. Uh, For instance, for the Supreme Court, and this is really important because right now the Supreme Court technically has a four to three Republican majority. That is, people serving on the Supreme Court were nominated at partisan conventions or were appointed by partisan governors at various times, which has resulted in four Republicans on the court, even though they run as nonpartisans, and three Democrats. However, the chief justice of the Supreme Court is a Democrat, Bridget Mary McCormick, and she is running for renomination this weekend and reelection this November. There is one other seat up for grabs because another justice, Steve Markman, a Republican, cannot run again because he's over the age of 70. So it's an open seat. And if the Democrats win this open seat and Mary McCormick wins, they will have a four to three majority. Now, you can say, well, in terms of who the chief justice is, does that really matter? Because Bridget Mary McCormick is already the chief justice. But that's not viewed as a permanent sinecure. Usually these chief justices only serve two terms, and somebody will probably uh, want to be chief justice after two session terms by Bridget Mary McCormick. So it's very important who wins this open seat And the Democrats have nominated a Grand Rapids, an East Grand Rapids attorney named Elizabeth Welch, W-E-L-C-H. That's who's going to get the nomination this weekend for the Democrats. And the Republicans are going to nominate appellate judge at State Court of Appeals, Brock Swartzel. Uh, So he will be running. And also, you are going to have a St. Clair County assistant prosecutor, Mary Kelly, running. So the Republican nominees are 
Schwartzel and Kelly, the Democratic nominees, are going to be McCormick and Welch. And these justice candidates run in a pack, meaning they're all bunched together. These are not slotted races. It's not going to be automatically, let's say, McCormick versus Schwartzel or Welch versus Kelly. They're all running together, and whoever finishes first and second gets elected, no matter who that is. It could be two Democrats. It could be two Republicans. It could be one of each. So let's see what happens after this weekend in the Supreme Court race. University of Michigan, you have got uh, two Republican candidates running uh, as challengers to two Democratic incumbents. The two Republicans are Sarah Hubbard, who is a longtime fixture in Lansing. Uh, she is the principal of, of Acutus. And another candidate, Carl Myers, who has run before, M-E-Y-E-R-S, Carl Myers for the Republicans. And the two Democratic incumbents are Mark Bernstein, who is a brother of Supreme Court Justice Richard Bernstein, and Shauna Ryder Diggs. I mean, I can keep going uh, on all these races. Uh, I got to tell you, the Democrats control all three of the university boards, MSU, University of Michigan, and Wayne State. And they control the State Board of Education by heavy majorities going into the election on November 3rd. So let's see what happens with that. We are going to be back in a minute with our first guest. So please don't move that dial. Stay tuned. This is MTN, and you're listening to The Political Insider with Bill Ballinger. Here's Bill. As promised, we are back, and we are very lucky to have on the other line with us Janelle Leonard, who is owner of Marketing Resource Group, a very prominent political consulting firm in Lansing. She's also chairman of the Clinton County Republican Party, I believe, and she lives just north of Lansing uh, in DeWitt on the shores of Lake Geneva, and that may be the reason that her daughter and that of her husband, uh, Tom Leonard, former Speaker of the Michigan House of Representatives, found a turtle on the shores of Lake Geneva this week and then maybe had to give it up. Tell us about that. Yeah, absolutely. So we we try to uh, go on some family walks here, and uh, I have the kids at home still with me, uh, not going to daycare, and I'm running my business virtually as well. So uh, to maintain some sanity, we take a lunch hour walk, and uh, my daughter found a little little turtle there on the on the sidewalk. So she is uh, begging for a pet, and this was my way to try to put aside the uh, the need or the desire to get a dog or a cat. I figured we could try out a turtle for a minute. So she she it, it worked. Um, I kept the the dog and cat speak at uh, at bay um but we we kept him for a couple days and definitely turned him into the the river yesterday and she she enjoyed it it was a lot of fun she named him fat 
because the shell was large. So <laughs> she she's getting her reasoning down there pretty good. Well, so she wasn't brokenhearted to give up the turtle. She's looking for no, the next pet. No, thankfully not. She okay. understands uh, the need for the baby turtles to be with their mommy and daddy the same way she wants to be with us. So uh, kind of implementing that, she did just fine. Well, okay. There was some other stuff going on this week beside the turtle, and that was a Republican National Convention, and there's going to be an mm-hmm. upcoming uh, state convention going on this weekend. Uh, let me just ask you, what was your impression of the Republican National Convention? Right. Well, it's it's a lot to put together. I mean, four days of, of speeches and uh, content and just the people that they had up there speak were, uh, it was patriotism personified, if you will, because you had so many people representing different demographics, but people that have been directly impacted um, by the policies that Trump has put forward. So you had the um, and things that they're trying to combat, obviously. You had the widow of um, Officer Dorn up there, very compelling, very emotional speech, but obviously talking about the riots and the protests and making sure that we have a safe America. You had the parents of the ISIS victim get up there, again, another emotional speech. But then you also had the underlining tones that really resemble what 2016 was about, the drain the swamp, the, um, the attack on the media, the fake news commentary. You heard that time and time again from real-life people who have experienced and or, you know, benefited from the Trump policies, but we're echoing how this kind of information, these experiences are not being let out on national media. So I think overall, the the entire convention was very well done. Um, They also tried to speak to populations that normally don't vote Republican. You had the minority group. You're looking at urban women. Those are obviously two targets moving into the general election. And they did a good job of making sure that their issues and priorities were addressed, um, especially on the economic side, to make sure to draw them in. For the president, um, you know, it was funny. I, I watched the speech, a very long one. I did stay up for it. But with that, it was funny. The commentary at the end was, wow, he just there, was, there were no fireworks actually in his speech. Um, it wasn't, you know, lively. It wasn't um, charismatic. And it's funny because that's what he gets criticized about nine times out of ten on the <laughs> other side. So the fact that he toned it down, I could tell that, you know, his base already loves him, but he was trying to talk to the mainstream American. He was very disciplined. He was able to um, highlight the successes and talk about the future and really make sure that Americans' traditional values are really uplifted, which I think will help them into the general election. So less, maybe more in this case. Uh, with- yeah, it was very long. It was very long. What was it 70, 71 minutes, something like that? Yeah. So it was very long. <laughs> uh, let me just ask you this. Uh, we should point out that this was a virtual convention, the first time, obviously, the Republicans have ever done this. The Democrats had to do the same thing last week. I mean, how much of this took place in Charlotte, North Carolina? And then there obviously was stuff on the South Lawn last mm-hmm. night. That's where the president gave his speech. Was anything left for Jacksonville or is Jacksonville just completely off the map? Because that's where mm-hmm. they were going to take it at one point when it looked like they couldn't do anything in Charlotte. Exactly. And actually, I was uh, so I serve as the chair of the Clinton County Republican Party, and I was voted by the 4th Congressional District to serve as a delegate to attend the national convention. So I was very excited about the opportunity there. Um, but however, due to COVID and all of the restrictions, um, our participation obviously has become limited. So with that, um, they had these, uh, like the rules committee and everything had to take place in Charlotte and then the actual 
uh, delegates that would go in and actually uh, vote for the president and vice president. That was going to take place in Jacksonville. Uh, when they decided to cancel the Jacksonville portion, the Charlotte portion still had to continue because of contractual agreements and, and all the things and the formalities and uh, all of that of the convention. So there was a component to the uh, Charlotte side, and then obviously he accepted his speech there on the uh, on the South Lawn there of the White House. You think the Republicans will get a so-called bounce out of this convention, which has traditionally happened in the past, although apparently it did not really happen for Joe Biden and the Democrats last week. Right. Well, I think it comes down to the the comparison of the, the two conventions and honestly what each um, each party stands for and what the issues they plan to address in this election. As, as Trump said last night, this is the most important election for sure. Um, and 60 percent of Americans agree with that. When you look at the comparison, though, yes, uh, Biden did a good job with his acceptance speech. But it, the overall, the, the reports and the viewership has just seen it as a dark um, convention. It's about how grim and terrible America is. Um, but then specifically, it's a referendum on Trump. They didn't talk about issues in depth. Yes, he said, you know, um, charisma is on the ballot kind of things. But putting personalities aside, people still want to talk about the actual issues. They want America to get back to normal. They want America to have a, a thriving economy and for people to go back to work and our kids to go back to a normal setting in school. They're looking for that kind of optimism. And when you compare the two conventions, absolutely the Republicans uh, showcased that much better than the Democrats did. Janelle Leonard, before we got you on the phone, I talked a little bit about the state convention this weekend, which people are kind of overlooking because it's been overshadowed by the national conventions. Last week, the Democrats, this week, the Republicans. And yet this state convention for both parties is very important. You nominate all your candidates for the state board of education, the three university boards, the state Supreme Court. Uh, How do you look at this convention coming up for the Republicans going on actually right now while we're talking? Yeah, absolutely. So this will be our second convention where we are holding it virtually. We did one um, this this past summer as well back in June. So it's it's the second time around. The first one went seamless. um, and, And kudos to our chairman, Laura Cox, and her team for putting on a very effective and efficient uh, convention back in June, and I expect it to go the same way here uh, this weekend as well. And you're right, it's an important convention. Obviously, this is where we select our um, Board of Education side. Um, they, we have a couple contested races for that, and then obviously our Supreme Court races as well. So the candidates themselves have done a great job reaching out to delegates and alternates, uh, despite not having in-person physical events for the most part. Um, their outreach has all been virtual via emails and text messages um, and targeting and, and mailers and all of that. So, so they've done a good job. But again, we, we fully expect it to be run just as efficiently as the June convention was this past summer. Well, Janelle Leonard, honestly, there are about 20 more questions I wanted to ask you, but we're out of time. We can't talk any longer. I wish we could. We'll get you back later, maybe sometime in the fall while the campaign's going on. And you can tell us what you think at that point. Thank you so much, Janelle Leonard, owner of Marketing Resource Group and Lansing, for being our guest on The Political Insider. Thank you, Bill. We'll be back in just a minute. You're listening to The Political Insider with Bill Ballinger on MTN. Here's Bill. We have returned, and we are... Very fortunate to have with us a former Michigan Republican Party chair, 
She is now Susie Avery, but back in the day, like I can't believe it, 25 years ago, 1994 to 96, she was Susie Heinz, Susie the Heinz, the Suze. So Susie Heinz Avery, Susie Avery, welcome to the Political Insider. Uh, no, I, you know, I change my name periodically just to keep everyone <laughs> confused, so no one can, can, no one can know where I live. <laughs> you can't, you don't let anybody pin you down. Uh, <laughs> let me just ask you this: You still are very active in the Michigan Republican Party, and I know you watched some or all of the national convention this weekend. So, what was your impression? Well, I got to say, you know, I watched both conventions. I'm I'm such a junkie. Um, and I and the the first thing that I know it sounds like a very technical thing, but there were no technological glitches on either of the conventions, which I thought was astounding, seeing that this was the first time that either one, either party, had tried to run a a, a thing all on, uh, a, like like they had to because of of uh, the COVID. But um, I, I think. Parties are, are changing a lot in terms of like when I was uh, back in the back in the day. Um, there, uh, I, I, I like to watch the conventions or go to conventions to see some of the rising stars, you know, that are coming up in both parties, and just to see what they have to say and how they present themselves. But um, I think giving uh, people like in the Democratic Party, AOC giving her time is kind of interesting to me because um, I had a friend one time that said, oh, the Tea Party stuff, that will never happen in the Democratic Party. Well, guess what? I mean, progressives <laughs> are changing the Democratic Party. And she actually is supporting primary candidates against Democratic incumbent uh, con congressional incumbents and so that's why i was surprised that the she was given um you know so much time in in terms of speaking to a convention that would have never happened back in the day on in in either party um on on the other hand um i i think that both parties showed rising stars i mean we had uh cory booker and kamala harris in the democrats we had uh, this tim scott and nikki haley in the republican party so um, it it was the the conventions kept me interested, even though I think they should be only two days and held in the afternoon um, versus California time, as I call it. Yeah, well, that may still happen because this is kind of a work in progress uh, because of the virus. Both parties, as you point out, had to do this virtually, and this is the first time they did it. It's kind of a miracle that there were not technological glitches, as you point out. They were very cleanly run, cleanly done. But I'm sure there's going to be a lot of fine-tuning going on. And the next time either party does this, maybe it's the wave of the future in terms of being virtual, but how it's shaped and whether it's two days or three days instead of four days and the time of it, that's probably all going to be worked out, don't you think? Yeah, yeah, I think. And I, I did like the idea of, um, you know, shortened speeches, uh, two to two to three to four minutes. Um, I, I did think that they did a, a, a good job in, in terms of, of keeping it in terms of 
the, the time frame. The, the thing that I missed and that um, that as, a, as an old broad I still remember was, you know, it, it, when we had the convention come to Detroit and a lot of things, I mean, the biggest thing in a lot of these conventions are who are they going to choose for vice president? I mean, if it was an incumbent or not. And to have all, uh, all the mystery kind of taken away kind of takes away the excitement of a, of a convention. Um, and that's what gets people flowing, even when you talk about, um, you know, like Michigan State conventions. Um, you know, who's going to win? Who's going to, I mean, who are they going to vote for and all this kind of stuff? And who's Ford going to pick as his vice president and things like that? And so I think you lose some of that in terms of um, how the parties are being run right now. There's no smoke-filled rooms, but it takes away the uh, excitement a little bit, I think. Well, speaking of state conventions, we got one going on right now uh, in Detroit for the Republicans, and the Democrats have one going on, too. And these are important. They nominate candidates for the Supreme Court, for the three university boards, and for the State Board of Education. So what do you look for this weekend from the Republicans? Well, from the Republican side, I am I am. I'm, I'm always kind of, of shocked that um, we have um, people that are um, actually they're going to have sites for um, who's going to be on the ballot for some of the university boards. And that's in both parties, actually. Um, uh, both parties will, will tell you that sometimes it's been um, rather challenging to find candidates to run for university boards, but not in this atmosphere anymore. Let me tell you, uh, people are... Uh, Trying to get into Michigan State on both sides of the aisle um, that are that, that have some um, opponents. We got people going on and uh, for the, the there's only three universities uh, according to the Michigan Constitution where, you, where we have this um, Wayne State, Michigan State, and U of M. And um, so I think we're going to find that Wayne State uh, for the Democrats is going to be rather contentious. So that ought to be an interesting one to watch. State Board of Education is kind of the same. We have uh, some primary, uh, some what well, I would call primaries, but people vying for those seats. Usually you just don't hear that much about education seats, but I'll tell you, this year we do. Usually it's the entire focus is on the Supreme Court. Now the, there are some Supreme Court things going on, you know, with, you know, okay, Bridget McCormick's running in, etc., and there'll be an open seat. So, but usually you hear a lot more than what is going on. But then, of course, it's not Labor Day. They say everything, you know, takes place starting at Labor Day is when everybody else, other than myself, um, starts paying close attention to all of this. The biggest thing, though, which I'm going to be interested to see, is if there's any backlash for either the any state conventions or even the national convention on on these on those. These talking about prosecutors not not um, not prosecuting um, looters in a lot of the cities and things because I think Republicans see that as an opening in terms of an issue that they can that they can have and so we'll see how that I'm going to pay attention to see if anybody brings that up. Well, speaking of prosecutors, I think the Republicans are going to nominate uh, Mary Kelly, uh, who is an assistant prosecutor. Uh, over in, uh, I think it's St. Clair County. Uh, right. Um, and, you know, the Supreme Court is very important. I mean, it's right now technically a 4-3 court, four Republicans, three Democrats, although they profess to be nonpartisans. And if the Democrats sweep both these seats, if Bridget Mary McCormick is reelected and they win the open seat, they will have control of the Supreme Court for the first time in a long time. 
And the Republicans are hoping to win that open seat at least if they can't beat Bridget Mary McCormick. So what about Mary Kelly? The Democrats have already started to go after her. Yeah, yeah, they haven't. And they haven't gone after her. They've gone after her husband. I mean, you know, which is kind of interesting. Um, uh, You have to be very, very careful when you're going um, after a a woman in a a position that that she is. I don't think that stuff is going to stick. I think that that they're kind of looking for. I always said, uh, you know, this whole sometimes this progressive uh, movement and, you know, when they go um, when someone decides to go low they go lower versus anything but um uh, but it it's one of those it's it's one of those deals where uh i don't think that that stuff is going to really stick that much people don't pay that much we have always said people don't pay that much attention to that race until it gets really really close for them to be bringing stuff out now about it is is interesting to me you're going to see you know debbie stabbing on all you know stuff um, and then you're gonna then you're gonna start seeing the big race in Michigan, which I think is going to be the John James uh, versus Gary Peters race. I think that is going to be the the race that the national parties will be following. Well, at the top of the ticket, Trump versus Biden, and then you've got Gary Peters versus John James. Uh, the result of those two races that pretty much going to dictate what happens in these university board races on November third, and for that matter, maybe to a lesser extent, the Supreme Court. Listen, I I could ask you so much more. We're just getting started, and yet we're finished. This segment has run out of time, so we can't talk any longer. But listen, I'd love to get you on later on this fall and get your assessment of what's happening. Let's do it, Bill. Okay, thank you. Susie Avery, Republican activist and former Michigan Republican Party chair. Thank you, Susie Avery. We'll be back in a minute. You're listening to The Political Insider with Bill Ballinger on MTN. Here's Bill. As everybody knows up to this point uh, about the national and state Republican and Democratic conventions, but we're going to switch gears right now and we're going to get into something that is really complex and extremely important. And that is the state's economy and the budget for state government. It is so fast changing and so complex. And we're very fortunate to have with us Craig Thiel, who is the research director of the Citizens Research Council. And Craig Thiel, welcome to the Political Insider. Well, thanks for having me, Bill. I hope I can help you Uh, and your listeners. You can't do anything but help. We are so uh, out in the boondocks right now, wondering, scratching our heads, what's going on. Uh, Just describe the situation fiscally in the state in broad terms, like uh, how things looked in the spring and in the summer, and how do they look now? What's going on? Yeah, Bill, um, good question. Uh, Even going back a little earlier, back to the beginning of the year in January, uh, before the pandemic hit, you know, the state was chugging along uh, on its budget, was in a good condition. Uh, Things were balanced. Uh, Revenues were coming in. Uh, Programs were seeing more than inflationary increases across uh, the state budget. And then the pandemic hit, and, um, you know, the economy basically shut down with the stay-at-home orders. Uh, This isn't just in Michigan, but nationally. 
and uh, no surprise, state tax revenues uh, started to take a major hit as people, you know, lost jobs, as people curtailed their their spending. So income, sales, taxes all went down. Um, and th- and this, this was the story for the first three months of May, and uh, that coincides with when the, the folks, uh, the officials at state uh, in the executive and in legislative branch kind of estimate what's going on with revenues. And in May, they predicted uh, some very dire uh, conditions for the next uh, few years from a budgetary standpoint. The, the headline number in May was that uh, the budget was looking at like a $5.7 billion shortfall. Uh, in the general fund, this was about a 20% deficit. I mean, something we've never even seen in, in modern history. Um, and then the school aid fund, a slightly smaller uh, uh, deficit. But combined, the two funds were about 5.7 in the red for the next couple fiscal years. Um, but they also that at this time in May that, you know, everything is so fluid right now, the economy, um, how we're responding to this pandemic, what the federal government was doing in terms of propping up the economy that they said, well, let's let's wait till August before we settle on a final kind of revenue picture for next year. And we just heard that news uh, last week. And the, the story was that things have improved more than we thought that they had improved, still down from January. Um, but nothing like what they projected in May. So as things stand right now, that $5.7 billion shortfall over the next couple fiscal years has been reduced to about a billion and a half. So um, still a deficit. Things are still struggling from the state revenue perspective, but much better than things in May. So hopefully that kind of paints a a little bit of the the recent history here. Yeah, that's a great overview. Uh, Let me just uh, point out that there is only about a month left in the current fiscal year, which ends September 30th. And then we start what is called fiscal year 2021, which begins October 1st, just over a month from now, and extends to September 30th of next year. And then there's the year after that. Now, I mean, break that up. It looks to me like they have solved any deficit in the current fiscal year budget through the end of September of this year, right? And then uh, they are worrying about, okay, how do we take care of 2021? And then we'll get into beyond that. Yeah, right. So, you know, kind of the analogy of eating an elephant one bite at the time. How do you deal with a $5.7 billion yeah. shortfall right. in May? And, you know, the, the the legislature and the governor came together after some, you know, behind-the-doors negotiations and announced a solution um, back at the end of June, um, kind of the rough outlines of a solution, and then over the m- month of July – kind of put the final touches on it, and the legislature balanced the current year budget that you note is only a month left, but at the time there was about two months left when they when they um, uh, made that agreement at the end of June. Um, and what that agreement basically did was, uh, you know, use a, a bunch of federal resources that um, have come through uh, uh, 
the CARES Act, the stimulus package, to kind of patch together the budget for the current year. So that's been put to bed. That's in balance. Um, and the anticipation was now we'll turn our attention to the 2021 budget. Um, but in between those, that time that they put the budget together uh, we've, and, and working on the 2021 budget, they've had this updated revenue conference, which paints a much rosier picture. Um, and so I think in the next few weeks you will see fairly quick um, uh, action on the 2021 budget. Um, and this is important because a lot of entities – uh, that state government um, uh, provides funding to, they've already started their fiscal year. Local governments have already started their fiscal year. They have no idea how much revenue they're going to get next year, even though they're in the middle of their, or at the beginning of their fiscal year. School districts is a, are another example. So they, these entities that um, rely on state taxes to fund their operations are kind of uh, really waiting for this decision to come about so they know how they can proceed over the next uh, nine nine months of their fiscal year. So you think it's like a billion and a half deficit uh, on paper through the end of 2021 through September 30th of next year at this point before they take action, they being the legislature and the governor in the next couple of months? Actually, it's a little better than that. It's it's a billion and a half over the next two fiscal years. So the 2021 budget and the 2022 budget okay. uh, are collectively are are down about a billion and a half. Um, and again, this is all subject to change because we've never seen kind of the fluidity and the revenue estimates like we have um, even during the Great Recession. Um, it's it's just been very challenging for revenue estimate estimates to, to, to really peg this thing because we've just never experienced, you know, a complete shutdown of our economy. So the economic models that they use have really, they've had to build them anew. Um, they can't use past experience because we've never had this experience. Well, uh, out of this one and a half billion dollar deficit projected right now on paper through two fiscal years, you're saying through 22, how much of it is 2021? How much of that $1.5 billion is just the next fiscal year, and I realize it's totally fluid, as you say. It completely could change. Right. So <laughs> the way it breaks out for the state general fund, it's about $400 million in the red for next year on paper, and then $1.1 billion in 2022 on paper. Um, so that's it's about... Uh, double the size in 2022 as it is in, in 2021. How about the school aid fund? Now, the school aid fund, uh, because of the mix of taxes that go there, is in much better condition. Um, coming out of that May conference, the school aid fund was looking at a billion-dollar shortfall on paper for next year, the 2021 year, and that has been eliminated entirely, and now it's looking at a slight surplus at the end of 2021. Wow. Now, I should just condition that um, uh, statement on the fact that that would in, that would that would be at current spending levels. So that would be no increase in your you know basic foundation grant, no increase in your you know at risk funding for school districts. This would be just carrying forward the current year 2020 spending levels. Um, you know which you know is 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 um, you know wouldn't factor in any cost of living changes for schools or anything along that lines. Well. Is there anything in particular the Citizens Research Council thinks that state government should be trying to do going forward to guard against 
digging any deeper a hole than they already find themselves yeah. in. Well, something that uh, we've we've uh, stood behind is just some good budgeting practices. Um, you know, regardless of the level of government, but governments should live within their means, um, and that means that the ongoing revenue that's brought in through taxes and various revenues should match the amount of ongoing spending that governments do. So we shouldn't be in a position where we're spending more than we're bringing in. It seems like a fairly simple equation, Bill, <laughs> but it tends to be a, a little bit of a challenge for uh, you know elected officials um, that more often than not want to look for maybe the easier way to balance the budget. So we've, we've often said, let's make sure we have a structural balance in our budgets. That way we don't get around into uh, gimmicks and creative accounting to balance the budget because that can have some real uh, negative effects on other aspects of the state's fiscal picture. Right. Listen, uh, we could keep going with this conversation, uh, but we are, as usual, out of time. I'm sorry to say, but Craig Thiel, Research Director for the Citizens Research Council, has given us about as good of overview of the current fiscal situation in the state as you're ever going to see or read or hear anywhere. Thank you so much, Craig Thiel. Thanks for having me, Bill.